some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is the word of our Lord. It allows us admission into Christ's church and to the Lord's Supper, and we passively receive it as disciples of Jesus. Dylan is being baptized, not because he has professed faith, but because Robert and Holly have professed their faith and obedience to Christ. God told Abraham to apply the sign of the covenant to himself and to his children. And now we apply the new covenant sign to our children. Through baptism, we are fulfilling our covenant obligation. This sacrament is a visible picture of God's promise. It is the visible word. It's a billboard that says, I love you and I will be faithful to you. Just as God gave us the rainbow to remind him and us that he would never flood the earth again. He gives us this covenant sign to promise us that he will always be with us. Baptism reminds us of God's grace, of our union with Christ, of our remission of sins, of how we have been washed by the blood of Christ and the life everlasting. The sacraments communicate the gospel. It reminds us we need Jesus. It is a seal upon our conscience, the promise that his goodwill is towards us because our faith is weak. Remember your baptism or another baptism. How has God been faithful to you? There's nothing magical about this water. It has no power in itself, but it's a sacrament that God has given us because he is a gracious father who loves us in Christ. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. That changes the heart. This morning, the fallen, the father looks at Dylan and says, There is Dylan. He is the child of my faithful servants, Robert and Holly. If they obey my word, I will be their God and they will be my people. Their house is being set apart for God's redemptive mission. In the same way, he looks at Blaine and says, You are a son in whom I am well pleased because of Jesus. Baptized, infant, and adult have the same obligation to lay hold of the covenant promises, to have faith and obedience. Our children have this right by birth, and it will be their duty and privilege to personally accept Christ, to confess Him, and to seek admission to the Lord's table through a profession of faith. And when they do, they will look back at their baptism and see how God's grace has been poured out upon them. We have done nothing to merit God's love, but he is gracious and merciful and has provided redemption through his son. And we look forward to that day when Dylan will profess that his parents' God is his God, that their faith is his faith. And then he will look back to Abraham as his father in faith. So Blaine, Robert, Ollie, Dylan, will the session also please come forward? You're first. As an applicant for admission into the church of God by baptism, which is a sign and seal of our engrafting into Christ and our encouragement to be the Lord's, the session has examined and approved Blaine Donovan Gardner 
who is cordially welcomed into the fellowship of the household of faith. Blaine, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon his grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the follower of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of this church and promise to study its purity and peace? Blaine Donovan Gardner, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, brother. All right, your turn. I'm going to wash your hair. Come here. For to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as my, many as the Lord God shall call unto him. And I will establish my covenant between you and me and your seed and after you throughout generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be your God unto you and to your seed after you. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your house. Robert and Holly, do you acknowledge your child's need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promise on his behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon his grace that you will endeavor to send him a godly example, to pray with and for him, to teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and to strive by the means of God to his appointment to bring him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Members of Christ's Presbyterian Church, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting Robert and Holly in the Christian nurture of Dylan, do you? Do. Robert Dylan Gardner, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by this water and spirit you have bestowed the covenant blessings upon your family. You have raised them up to new life and sustained them. O oh Lord, in your Holy Spirit, give us a heart that desires you, the courage to will and to preserve, and a spirit to know and love you, and the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. Amen. Amen. That's why Becky did not read uh, verses 5 through 38, but just we, we've, as we've looked at verses 5 through 38 for two weeks, there's a portion of that we skipped. And we come back this morning to look at it. It's directly related to everything Jesus was saying in that passage. Before we look at this scripture from Luke 21, let's pray together and ask the Jesus who was there speaking and who's here this morning. Let's ask him to teach us. Our Father, when we bow in this church before you to speak to you. Our Father, we not only come as prophets who have been out in the world speaking your word to the world around us through our lives, through what we say, the way we live, 
But Father, when we bow before you, we bow before you also, all of us as priests, coming before you, coming before our God and maker for the world around us, bringing the people we know and love, our neighbors, our families, in our prayers and placing them before you. Our Father, this morning, we remember and continue to pray for Jim Bennington and Billy Griggs. We pray that you would bless these two men and cause them to have a vision of what lies ahead for them. Give them a vision of your glory that they might look forward with anticipation. We pray that you would give them strength of heart for these days. We thank you for how you blessed Vicki Anderson and have brought healing to her. We pray, our Father, that this will be a complete healing and she will not have any other issue. Keep her from any complications. We thank you for how you have brought healing to Rick Abernathy's father. We ask that you would continue to sustain him. We pray that you would bless Sydney Wickens, that her knee would heal. Bless Bill Moore. Father, we thank you for his surgery. We pray that the pain would begin to uh, dissipate. We pray that, that, Father, you would bring a complete healing and a good range of motion to his knee. Our Father, we ask that you would bless our marriages. Father, where there needs to be healing between husbands and wives, we pray that you would bring that healing. Where there needs to be healing between children and parents, we pray that you would bring that healing. And now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. John Sartell cannot teach or preach so that it will make any difference in our lives. No man who stands behind this desk is able to do that. Only you are able to change hearts. We've heard your voice in this place in the past, and we've been changed week after week after week. Sometimes the change is imperceptible, but it's there. We pray that Father, we would hear your voice this morning and that that change would continue or that maybe you might change some of us for the first time. Our Father, we pray for that. Thank you. Thank you that we can come and speak to you as priests. We pray now that when we leave here in a few minutes, that we will know that you have spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. Paradoxical pulpits and harmless deaths. In Acts chapters 4 and 5, when the apostles first suffered the heat of persecution, in this world, the very first time that they suffered this, they had been flogged, beaten, their backs laid open with whips. And we read there in Acts 5.41, you'll see it on your scripture sheet, rejoicing, they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Have 
you ever, have any of us ever had that feeling? Have you ever consciously suffered because of your faith and rejoiced because you had been granted the privilege, the privilege, the honor of suffering with Christ? That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Who rejoices when their backs have been cut open by a hostile whip? Who rejoices when they've been ostracized? There's a hymn that we used to sing in the church. I haven't heard it in years. But one of one verse of that hymn, the hymn is Faith of Our Fathers. And one verse of that hymn reads, Our fathers, chained in prisons dark, were still in heart and conscience free. And blessed would be their children's fate if they, like them, should die for thee. I remember when I became old enough and sang that verse for the first time, <laughs> and I got down, how, how blessed would be their children's fate if they, like them, and I remember looked at it and said, I don't know whether I want to die yet or not. I don't know whether I want to do that. Would you really consider yourself blessed to suffer in prison for Christ? Would you consider yourself blessed if you should die for Christ? We sang Jesus loves me. This I know a few minutes ago. Well, what does Jesus say about this? Let's, let's lay a background again for Luke 21 and especially these verses. Remember the beginning of his ministry. We've said this over and over again. The beginning of his ministry, he was focused on who he was, identity. With every time he healed, made a blind man see, a deaf person hear, a paralyzed person walk. Every time he raised the dead, every time he stopped a storm, he was saying to the disciples, who am I? And finally they said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately, at that exact moment, Changed the emphasis. It was no longer who am I. It was what have I come to do. And they thought he was Messiah who had come to rid them of the Roman Empire. And set up one great Israeli Empire forever. But he didn't come to do that. He began to tell, talk to them about he had come to die. He began to talk about his own death. This was completely foreign to their idea of what a Messiah should do. But he had come to do battle with a much greater personage than the Roman Empire. He had come to do battle with sin and Satan. He had come to redeem his creation and required a terrible death. And then as he spoke, especially in this last week, but it started back when they confessed and he began to talk to them about his death. He began to talk to them about their death and their suffering. And as he comes to this last week of his life, he began to increase his words, not only about his suffering, but about their suffering. So that's the background of this passage. That forms a, a foundation for it. I'm going to suffer. You don't like to hear it. But I'm going to suffer. That's what Jesus is saying. But you also will. 
As we look at this passage then, what does Jesus think about this? Jesus spoke of an inevitable intimidation from the world. Look at verse 12. But before all this, he's been speaking about the, uh, uh, he's giving them a history lesson of the future. We used to have a history lesson of the past. Well, the last two weeks here, we've gotten a history lesson of the future. Here's what's going to happen in the future. Jerusalem's going to fall. One day the Messiah will return and there will be a great judgment. And he's been talking about the signs of this. But in the middle of that, here in these few verses that Becky read, look at verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you for my name's sake. Now, Jesus took a break from these great prophetic words to say another prophetic word. You're going to suffer. Look at verses 16 and 17. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Just as I've been betrayed, just as I will be betrayed, you will be betrayed. You will be persecuted. Those words of Jesus are just not unique to this passage. They're echoed through all the Gospels. In Luke 10, 3, I'm sure you remember that message. Uh, and Jesus said, go your way. Behold. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What was he leading to? The hostility of the world. Listen to Matthew 24, 9. It's there on your scripture sheet. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. John 15, 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, your, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus is saying, you are carrying the good news of the gospel. You're carrying the great gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't expect the world to eagerly receive the news of your faith. Don't you expect that? Don't be naive about the nature of the world. Now, we tend to think, as Christians living in this day, we tend to think that the world has become more advanced in technology, more advanced in some characteristics of civilization, so advanced that the world will be more accepting of Christianity. Let me ask you a question. Those of us that are older, do you think the United States, do you think our culture is more accepting today of Christianity than it was 100 years ago? Do you think it's more accepting of, of our faith than it was 50 years ago? Some of us as Christians do not want to take this seriously. We think it's some kind of gross overstatement by Jesus or was just limited to that day. I think we think that way because most of us do not personally know a single individual that has been put in jail for his or her faith or died for his or her faith. But some places in the world, a lot of places in the world, this very Sunday, they would say of these words, well, of course, we, we see that. We know people like that. We see it every day. And I simply remind you, 
that in the communist revolution in Russia with Marx and Lenin, 21 million people, think about that, 21 million people died, not put in prison, died, were killed. A great number, huge number of those people was simply because of their faith. As Russia was trying to eradicate, read Marx, Friedland, they were trying to eradicate Christianity, hated it. When Mao brought about the bloodbath in China, 46 million people, 46 million, huge number of those folks. They just died because of the faith. Bibles were burned. Churches were burned. Churches were closed. Christians were tortured. Christians were killed. That didn't happen in the first century. It happened 2,000 years after Jesus said these words. You see, and it started right at the beginning. Just peruse the book of Acts this afternoon. The church broke out on the world in in chapters 2 and 3. By chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested. By chapter 5, they had been arrested again and beaten, severely beaten. In chapter 6, the deacon Stephen was arrested. In chapter 7, he was killed. Saul was behind the persecution, the end execution of Stephen. He stood right there just as... As I look down and see John Cameron, he was he was looking right there. Stephen could look. He had debated Saul, and Saul was looking at him and relishing the thought that this man would die. This same Saul, in the next chapter, leads in a huge onslaught against the Christians of Jerusalem. But by chapter nine. Saul is converted. And what happens? The hunter becomes the hunted. He's in Damascus and he has to flee Damascus at night. Why? Because he was now a person of faith. In chapter 12, Herod killed James and put Peter in jail, anticipating to kill him also. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas ran into opposition in Cyprus and fled from their and fled for their lives from Pisidia and Antioch. In chapter 14, Paul is stoned and left for dead at Lystra. It just goes on, every chapter. And how does the book of Acts end? Paul is in prison in Rome, awaiting to be executed. From the very beginning to the 20th and 21st century. No, we don't know here. You and I don't know people in Fayette County, people in Tennessee that have been put in jail for their faith. We don't know anyone that's been killed for their faith here, local. But we do see. We see in a way that we haven't seen it before, the marginalizing marginalizing of Christianity. Every day, this is happening in our secular culture. As a Christian If you don't feel strange in this culture, you don't understand. And what Jesus was saying to his disciples, this this chapter, 
that what these few words we're going to see are tremendously encouraging. They really are. That's why Jesus gave them. He's saying, here's what's going to happen, and here's what you will do. Here's how you will live in through that time. So we see an inevitable intimidation by the world. Secondly, we see paradoxical pulpits. Look at verses 12 and 13. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for thy name's sake. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Now, first, the meaning of the word paradoxical for the people from Ole Miss. Paradoxical is something that seems absurd. It's, it's, it's something that seems to be contradictory. You say something and it's, it's just a contradiction. Jesus was speaking of persecution. And here he's saying in this verse that your persecution will become a pulpit for you. The gospel will be proclaimed from the pulpit of persecution. It's a, that seems paradoxical, doesn't it? He doesn't say just that you'll be brought to prisons. He said you'll be taken in front of all kinds of congregations. These will be curious circumstances. Paul, King Agrippa would never come to your church in Antioch, never come to your church in Corinth. He wouldn't do it. But I'm going to see that you're arrested. I'm going to see that you're persecuted and that you stand before King Agrippa as an accused criminal and you will preach the gospel not only to Agrippa, but to his whole court, to his whole entourage. Paul, I'm going to see that you stand in Rome in the court of Caesar and you will speak the gospel. They will ask you. It won't be that you will stand up and say, I don't care whether you like it or not. I'm going to preach the gospel. They will actually say, Paul, tell us what you've seen. Tell us what you know. Read verse 13 again. This will result in you being witnesses to them. There's a principle here that should interest all of us. The world's expressed hostility to the gospel is an opportunity for the gospel. It's a paradoxical book. There's a I read about a minister who lived in, in western Russia, and he had this was before the Iron Curtain fell. And he had been arrested several times. And he knew the next time that they came to arrest him, that he would be sent to Siberia. He would be sent away to a labor camp. And so he preached to his congregation. He preached powerfully about the power of God to take care of that little church. Then at the end of the sermon, just like I'm speaking to you today, at the end of the sermon, he calmly announced that he had been called to a new congregation in Siberia. 
He got it. He understood what Jesus was saying. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Think about this. We spoke about Vespasian, the Roman general, last week that laid, laid, first laid siege to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And during that siege, Nero committed suicide. Vespasian was called back to be emperor of Rome. When he was called back to Rome, he began to build, he initiated the building of the great Colosseum in Rome. His son Titus uh, concluded that building of the Colosseum in 80 AD. The walls of the Colosseum were 160 feet high. The Colosseum had 80 entrances. Just think about it. 80 doors entering the Colosseum. It held crowds of over 50,000 people. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The ancient battles of Greece and Rome were reenacted in the Colosseum. Gladiators fought to the death. And Christians were brought there to die. Vespasian didn't know it. But he built the Colosseum so that 50,000 Romans could gather and watch Christians give a testimony to Jesus Christ and the power of Christ as they were persecuted, as they sang, as they prayed. And the great work, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It was noted that one of the mistakes the Romans made in their persecution was the building of the Colosseum. Was the public killing and execution of these Christians. Because Romans were converted. Think about that. The Colosseum, a place of torture and persecution. And Jesus said, no, it will be a pulpit. Look around you today in Fayette County in the Mid-South, wherever Christians are ostracized or marginalized, it's a paradoxical pulpit. But it will be a pulpit. Inevitable intimidation from the world, paradoxical pulpits. Thirdly, I want you to see an irresistible, these are sweet words, an irresistible inspiration. Look up at verse 14. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Don't be intimidated. Don't be defeated. Don't just throw up your hands and say, let's might as well give up. I will fill you with the right words to say. Your answers will be irresistible. Not only will those who have initiated the persecution hear the gospel at their own instigation, they will hear the gospel powerfully presented because God will be the one speaking in the power of his Holy Spirit through those people. Fair Sunshine is a book written by Jacques Purvis. It's an inspirational record of the martyrdom of the Scottish Covenanters in the 17th century. One chapter is about a very humble man. His name was John Brown of Priest Hill. He was a simple theologian, a Bible teacher. He was not a preacher. He had a, a, a speech impediment that was quite pronounced. He lived in the country with his wife Isabel and his children. He had a Bible school. And people came from all over to hear John Brown 
the simple theologian, country man, teach the Bible. He taught in his own home and then would hide out in the woods and people would gather in secret places where they would be taught by John Graham. John Graham of Claverhouse was in charge of an army of 9,000 soldiers sent into the highlands to persecute and destroy the Covenanters. Claverhouse was the man who killed John Brown of Priest Hill. He made a mistake, though. There is there his wife, there is his children. And for some reason, when John Brown asked if he could pray before he was executed, Claverhouse said, certainly you may pray. And Brown got down on his knees and began to pray. Even the soldiers, the dragoons that were present with Claverhouse, said that Brown lost his speech impediment during that prayer. His prayer was so effective and so convicting that Claverhouse stopped him and killed him. But Claverhouse admitted, even later in life, that for the rest of his life, he could not forget John Brown's prayer that day. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you the words. Remember when Stephen was being stoned and there face to face with Saul? And Saul was watching. What did Stephen pray? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. You don't think that until he was converted, you don't think that prayer haunted Saul? And where did Stephen get that? He got it from Jesus. Jesus dying, spread eagle on a cross. Father, forgive them. People spitting on him. The Romans that had driven the nails, the hate, the anger. And Jesus spoke peace. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. That was from a pulpit made of wood. It was said from a Roman cross, a place of torture and death. Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll tell you. And it will be from a paradoxical pulpit. Inevitable intimidation, paradoxical pulpits, an irresistible inspiration, finally, a salutary suffering. A salutary suffering. The word salutary means a saving suffering, a curative suffering, a healing suffering, a suffering that heals, a suffering that saves. And he was not referring to his own suffering. He was referring to the suffering of his own people. Put those lines together. That verse 16. Salutary suffering. Put those lines, verse 16. And some of you, they will put to death. Verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Put those lines together. They will persecute you. But not a hair of your head will perish. In fact, your suffering unto death will be a sign of real life. That's confusing. We want to say, I, John Sartell wants to say, Jesus, don't tell me I won't be harmed. I mean, you're saying I'm about to die, I'm about to be burned. My head cut off 
starved to death, fed to the lions, hanged. That's going to hurt, Jesus. What do you mean not a hair of my head will be? Will perish. What did Jesus mean? He doesn't say. He didn't say it wouldn't hurt. Remember Jesus on the cross in the agony? He didn't say it wouldn't do physical damage. His people would bear the scars in their own bodies of their persecution. But Jesus said, not a hair of your head will perish. A harmless death. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? A harmless death. Death always does harm to us. Death kills us. But what did Jesus do in death? He took his cross. We read this in Colossians. He took his cross and killed the only death that really mattered. He slew death by his own death. You see, we live at the foot of that cross. And we live right outside an empty tomb. What did Paul say at the end of 1 Corinthians 15? Death. Hey, death. Where's your sting? Now, he, he, was, he would be executed by Caesar. He would be executed. They would take off his head. And what did Paul say? You can just hear it. Death, where's your sting? Death, where's your victory? John Hooper was to be burned at the stake, or was burned at the stake, February 9, 1555. He wrote a letter to his friends from his prison cell. Two weeks before he was killed. January 21st, 1555. I want to read to you just a couple of sentences from that letter. Imprisonment is painful, but yet liberty, freedom, upon compromising conditions would be more painful. The prison stinks but yet not so much as houses where the fear and true honor of God is lacking. I must be alone and solitary. It's better so to be and to have God with me than to be in the company with the wicked. Loss of goods is great, but loss of God's grace and favor is greater. It's better to make answer before the pomp and pride of wicked men than to stand naked in the sight of all of heaven and earth before the just God of the latter day. Bishop Hooper had a wife and children whom he would not see again. He was a man of like passions like us. At the stake, he was, before the fire was lit, he was offered freedom. They would untie him if he would simply recant and deny his faith. His reply, or they told him, consider, Hooper, that life is sweet and death is bitter. And Hooper's reply was classic. True, life is sweet and death is bitter. But the death to come 
is more bitter. And the life to come is more sweet. There's a verse, you've heard me read it often. And you've heard me read it often because in the last few years it's become more and more and more precious to me. Because of living in this culture where we're ostracized. It's from Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. That's the call of the gospel, very simply. Go stand to the cross with Jesus. And bear the shame he bore. And bear the reproach he bore. That's our calling.